Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number nine. I am your host, Stephen Oakey. Today's episode features a conversation with Tom O'Meara of the University of Notre Dame. Daily Theology contributor Amanda Osheim and I had the opportunity to speak with Tom at the 2015 CTSA Annual Convention. In this episode, we speak with Tom about his experience of formation and education before, during, and after Vatican II, how he got involved with the ecumenical movement, and the importance of liking people if one wants to be a teacher. As always, please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you very much for listening. Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm here today with Amanda Osheim. Hello. Daily Theology Contributor, and we are speaking with Professor Emeritus Tom O'Meara of the University of Notre Dame. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. The, the first thing we'd like to ask about and talk about is how, how did you come to be a theologian? What was it that brought you into doing theology or excited you or drew you in? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, getting involved in, in theology came uh, a little bit later. I decided that I wanted to be a priest. You know, as I'm ending high school in 1953... The, the, I'm not sure I was even aware of it, that there was anything called a theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to remember that at that time, even Catholic colleges they didn't have a, any graduate programs <clears throat> other than Catholic University. There, there was no doctoral program in the United States, and only clerics could go to the, that program at Catholic U, and then there were the programs in Rome. So... Um, nobody uh, thought about being a theologian. They they were going to be a priest, and that Mm -hmm. meant you were going to teach high school or go into a parish. So I decided to become a Dominican. I uh, went to high school to the Dominican Sisters, and I was in Madison, Wisconsin, in a Dominican parish. And um, I knew that they had a little bit more of a connection to uh, education. Mm. Uh, So they taught in colleges, small Catholic colleges, but teaching in small Catholic colleges was uh, just teaching a a class to freshmen or sophomores. There was nothing more than that. So I went to to Loris, uh, where a couple of Dominicans taught, and I didn't know at the time, but later I realized that what was supposed to be theology was really largely philosophy. I mean, you have to realize, too, that the event that's coming up, Vatican II, it shifts the whole, the, the emphasis before Vatican II in the Catholic Church is on philosophy. Yeah. Neo-Thomistic philosophy. There's almost no interest or th- on theology, and that's why if you went back to the 40s and the 50s and looked at articles or at, at dissertations, they're often about Mary mm-hmm. or even about Joseph. And, uh, but it's a the, slim dissertation right there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not about, uh, there isn't, or they're about, uh, you know, the natural law and mm-hmm. uh, God's immutability. But they're not about uh, Jesus or the sacraments or the church. Okay. So I enter the order, and uh, two years before I'm ordained, the Pope says there's going to be this council called Vatican II. And, and right away, things began to change. Ecumenism emerges. And, the, and a few people started talking about, well, what are they going to talk about? 
and uh, was that something you noticed right away in formation? Yeah. Yes, we all noticed. Well, that was a big change too, because the Catholic Church in America, up until '60, was hardly ever mentioned in the media. Mm -hmm. It was something that, you know, immigrants were in, and it had curious things. But all of a sudden, with Vatican II and Pope John, it was splashed all over Life magazine and Time magazine. So there were endless articles about this, and then they would interview these uh, Europeans, and they would say things that were utterly shocking and new, like the liturgy ought to be in the vernacular, or Protestants were Christians, and so the <laughs> they uh, so the whole thing changed, and really it's it's at that point you realized well there are people called theologians, and they're very and, and they could be very interesting and very influential. And along that line, Vatican II begins in the fall of 62. So I would say in the previous 10 months or so, uh, Hans Kung, uh, a theologian, first theologian I'd ever you know, heard of in the way, he comes to the United States on a lecture tour. And he's known because he had written a book about what the council should do. Mm -hmm. And this thing became a bestseller in its English translation. And everybody read it, and it seemed, it, it seemed to be preposterous. You know, it was the liturgy should be in the vernacular and relations with world religions, and the bishops uh, should have more power and the pope should have less, all these kind of things. But what he wrote in the book was... Um, in fact, all happened at Vatican mm -hmm. II, but nobody thought that. Anyway, he came uh, on a lecture tour. Now, he was, and in, in, he must have been about uh, 61. He must have been about 32 or 33, and he was a, a professor at the University of Tübingen, which was very prestigious. The book, by the way, made, so the book made him famous and made him a millionaire. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's our great theological dream, right? That's why we all got into it. And he comes on the lecture tour, so so he's a, quite an advertisement for what a theologian would be. Anyway, we uh, the seminarians in the three seminaries in Dubuque they rented a bus, and we went to Chicago, and the McCormick Center was filled wow. with people. That's so so really, that is the beginning of modern theology in America. Hmm. That's the beginning of modern theology in America. So he, um, and so then um, when I finished uh, my theology, which was uh, neo-Thomism and uh, highly philosophical, in 62, um, in Dubuque, because they had, uh, started having a positive view of the two Protestant seminaries and cooperating with them. They needed uh, somebody uh, on the faculty who, who knew something about Protestantism. And so I had been very interested in this as a student. And so they, uh, they said, well, you're, you're going to go to Germany and get a doctorate because that's where Luther came from. <laughs> sound, sound reasoning. <laughs> how, how was your German at that point? I didn't know German. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
but uh, <laughs> that's just a detail. But I was so, so excited about uh, leaving Dubuque and <laughs> Iowa, and and uh, <laughs> doing something new. That so I went and uh, and I did my doctorate in, in Munich, and then came back and and, and th- those were the years of Vatican II, and. Uh, another interesting thing was when I arrived in in Munich in the fall of '63, there had been two Americans, one from Collegeville because they were uh, from German Benedictine uh, mm, background, sure. and they they had preserved that and were, you know did a lot of very progressive things at Collegeville, and then the other was a Paulist, and they had they had gone to. Munich, uh, the one the Paulist was still there, so I was the third to arrive. Uh, I, I was the first American uh, Dominican to study north of Rome, outside of Rome. Hmm. So everybody studied in Rome. That's another aspect of being a theologian. They studied in Rome or a Catholic U of U, and so. Um, so I arrived in the fall of 63, Vatican II starts at 62. By 65, there were 30 English-speaking doctoral students in Munich. Wow. wow. From, from uh, the United States, but also from uh, Scotland, England, Australia. So that, and, uh, and that would have been true of, of Louvain, Paris, Lyon, all those places so the, you see the shift in in studying to be a theologian completely moved mm-hmm. away from who had the monopoly, the Roman schools, to the rest of the world. Yeah, and that, and that, would, that would still have been a predominantly ordained or ordination track student body though, right? Yes. Um, interestingly enough though, in that first group of, of Amer- Americans to, to Munich, Say ten or twelve of the thirty-five, there was one one American sister, hmm. but there were two lay men. Hmm. So your point is taken. It's yeah, still yeah. largely clerical. But the interesting thing is how fast it changed. Yeah, it changed so fast. I mean, and the centers are shifting too. Yeah, right. And so, so you were intro- You know, you were introduced to an utterly different world. Germany was not under the neo. Thomistic monopoly, and at the same time, you had all these great people who knew a lot about Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and uh, modern philosophy. And Karl Rahner came to Munich at that time. And mm-hmm. So, uh, your view of so so I absorbed the, the German view of theology, which was you did a lot of uh, research and you did a lot of historical background in what you were doing. Um, the German, and that would still be true today. The Germans are very slow to do contemporary issues, mm-hmm. and to or to apply uh, basic things. And uh, I remember uh, in a seminar I had, I had to write a paper on on uh, Saint Ambrose, and at the end I alluded to the fact that this particular issue was still an issue to today. It was a really, it was a, the issue about. How should the Jews be treated in mm-hmm. the empire? Mm-hmm. And uh, and the pr- when I talked about the, my presentation with the professor, get rid of that. You don't do contempt. <laughs> don't do contemporary anything practical or contemporary in a seminar. But anyway, you came back with a, a, 
utterly different perspective than, than just the um, Roman neo-scholasticism. And then I'd say within, say if this is going on in 65, by 70 then, a lot of Americans are going to the American schools. Mm. So they're going to Duke, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Chicago. So all kinds of people are educated there too. And uh, you know, a few people have, have gone to, to Rome uh, since then, but very few. Yeah. Very few. Hmm. So theology changed, and it became historical, and it, and it uh, was okay to deal with modern philosophy. And then, so I think that's kind of the, the first and second acts of how I became a theologian. Okay. So I didn't really, uh, I never completely chose. I, I just <laughs> chose that it would be cool to, to, go to, to go to Germany and learn something new. You wanted to be like Hans Kuhn. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, rock star. That's right. Tom, you said that part of the reason you were chosen to go to Germany was because of your um, interest in ecumenical theology and the ecumenical movement. Would you talk a bit about how ecumenism started in Dubuque and what the first steps were and what you found moving about it? What captured your passion for it? Well, the, the first steps were this uh, Danish Lutheran theologian who was very famous to them, uh, he came to visit the Lutheran Seminary in Dubuque. And now, to support the fact that he was uh, well-known, he became one of the Lutheran observers at Vatican II, oh. uh, Christian Skidsgaard. And he, um, he, he somehow knew that, or they said that there was a Catholic seminary and a Presbyterian seminary in Dubuque, and he said, uh, well, I want to meet those people too. Well, this was unheard of. So n nobody among the three seminaries had met each other. This is the fall of 1960. Uh, and, and Dubuque is not a large town. No, no. The, we, we, the, <laughs> the schools were like eight blocks from each other. And no one had ever met or spoken. And so uh, he, he met with us, and then he lectured, I guess, all the... I mean, he met with the faculty. Not with, I was a student. Uh, and then he lectured them that they had a tremendous opportunity here. The three great traditions, Calvin, Luther, and, uh, and Aquinas and Catholicism, and, uh, and they should get to work and start working together. And so they did. And then uh, at the same time, uh, Lutheran seminarians and Catholic seminarians, of which I was one, they, they got all excited uh, about doing something. Part of it in terms of the seminarians is we would have been excited about anything. <laughs> we, you know, we, we didn't have any contact with the outside world by and large. The Dominicans, we didn't go home for six years. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and we were just studying endlessly this uh, philosophy and stuff. So uh, we would have been interested in anything. And the the Lutherans were much more knowledgeable. They knew there was something called ecumenism. And, uh, so anyway, the faculty and the students uh, went to work. And, and within four years, the faculty of the three seminaries and the School of Religion at Iowa had established an association mm. and were uh, teaching in each other's classes. So it went very fast. 
One thing I was wondering about, because you were talking about the sort of German model of higher education and the view of theology, at, at the same time, you're, you're doing this graduate work during Vatican II, and so you yes. noted all these things that are changing, and yet there's this uh, resistance to doing sort of contemporary application of the, the work that you're doing. So I'm kind of wondering, how, how did those two things, how did those two things balance or affect one another or... Just even if you could say more maybe about what it was like to be a student in the midst of your studying this theology, and yet it seems like the theological world is changing and going through this kind of groundswell. Uh, well, um, no, once you got to Europe, you know, and the, and the council was going on, um, you, you were studying the theology that had led to Vatican II. Mm-hmm. The, that's a, that's a kind of another topic. In the United States, um, you were studying this timeless uh, neo-Thomism. So, th- but that leads to a very good point. My generation, all kinds of people uh, in, in the United States, my generation, we did our theological education twice. Mm-hmm. So we all, if you finished uh, before, say, 65, you had done a theological education totally in the Tridentine and neo-scholastic thing, and then you had to go and do it again. Yeah. So if you look at my career, I'd had six years of philosophy and theology, and when I arrived at Munich, I, I had had none. I started all over again. I, I, I bought books that explained what... Um, what biblical studies were like, uh, what uh, history of my, I took courses, very basic courses on the history of modern philosophy. Uh, I didn't know anything. So, but that's true of everybody in my generation. Mm-hmm. We all did our, our education twice. And wow. um, the, um, the, the thing about what my little example about how the Germans didn't want to apply something to practical issues, that wasn't uh, because they had any problems with mm-hmm. practical issues. It, it was because they were scholars, mm. and they didn't. Uh, they, they just thought you you do the historical research and the basic understanding of what this thing is. You don't right away write the, what we would do spontaneously. Write the next chapter. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But uh, so the the real um, the conflict then. So we could get to the third act, which would be. Uh, once Vatican II is done, and then that coincides with with me uh, coming back, and um, well, you have all kinds of upheavals. Mo- many theology schools and se- seminaries in the United States, they they had a bunch of young people, my generation, uh, off studying, and. Uh, Maybe they foresaw that they'd have to have uh, some new professors, and and they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a huge number of people who went over there and then came back, and and these faculties and ourselves, we were all quite young, thir- thirty-one or so, thirty-two. So there were conflicts. There were plenty of of the old professors who who couldn't ac- accept the changes, uh, couldn't accept any of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, plen- plenty of them, you know, just quit and had nervous breakdowns and things like that. It was, it was so drastic, uh, 
and um, so that was true. But um, the superiors, and especially we're talking about the religious orders, uh, they um, and some diocesan seminaries, they had they had they sent a lot of people away, and they uh, so they really had almost new faculties. Wow! Uh, when when we came back. That was one stage, and then uh, you you had the f the fact that the the Catholic universities they they were inspired in a way by Vatican II and all the theologians to start graduate schools in theology. Sure. Um, so Notre Dame is the first uh, because it has this Holy Cross priest who wants to have a summer graduate program in liturgy. Oh, well, the real first is across the, the highway at St. Mary's in Notre Dame. Hmm. Uh, Mother, I didn't know that. Yeah, Mother Madaliva mm -hmm. started uh, programs. It was for sisters, mm. but it was for women, mm -hmm. uh, an MA and, uh, in about 56 or 7, and, uh, and not in just Thomism. So she was the first to to start a program in the United States for so you know you know when uh, lay people and lay women uh, and people are impatient, well they should be impatient. But if you think <laughs> if you think there was no graduate theology mm -hmm. be before fifty years ago, mm -hmm. and and uh, and look around you. There's mm -hmm. there's twelve hundred people with doctorates and things like that. So anyway, that was quite a thing. And so, little by little, the university started these graduate programs. Seminaries and they all started MA's program. They all started, and then uh, some started doctoral programs. So uh, very soon, I would say there was eight or nine doctoral programs. There were MA's everywhere. Sure. When I taught, I went to teach summer school at Notre Dame in 68 after I had gone to my first CTSA convention, mm -hmm. and um, there were 500 people there. Wow. The, well, the, so, so the universities and seminaries responded to the new theology by creating these programs, but they were also responding to the fact that most diocesan priests... Over, well, almost all diocesan priests and almost all sisters had no graduate degree. Uh, that's why our school in Dubuque got accredited with North Central. It was the second after Mary Knoll to be accredited with North Central so that it could give an MA to the seminarians who were going to school there because these people were often in high schools, even colleges, and they had no graduate degree, and the North Central was complaining about this. Mm -hmm. So, but but regardless, you had all these sisters and priests who were uh, going into new ministries, becoming DREs and everything, doing all kinds of things, and had no theological education, not even a major. Mm -hmm. And so these uh, schools flourished for 10 or 12 years, educating thousands of people. And then I would say probably... 68 or so I would say probably by 73 you have a, a number of lay people so this whole enter enterprise of theological change and renewal it starts off with the, all these huge numbers right. of sisters and priests then uh, and the church 
is catching up in terms of sisters and priests, but then uh, by 73 or so, then you have lay people too. So in 60, there's hardly a, like what is a theologian is hardly on the scene. Mm -hmm. And by 75, there are dozens of programs educating thousands of people. What a change. Huh? Yeah. I once uh, asked, you know, the church in France after the seven after Vatican II, which produced so much of Vatican II, the church in France went into doldrums. And I asked a, a distinguished French Jesuit once, and uh, and he's in maybe around 1990 or so. He said they presupposed that the structure was going to stay the same. It would be these same schools with these same kind of scholars and uh, bright uh, Jesuits and Dominicans. And, and that disappeared. But in the United States, you see, we replaced it with a whole new world, mm -hmm. and they didn't. Mm -hmm. Interesting lesson that, that if we had just stayed with you know, the same seminaries and the same kind of uh, teachers and uh, sisters and seminarians, we would have disappeared too mm -hmm. yeah. a long time ago. It is, and was that was driven then, you know, by the like Gaudium et Spes, the Church of the Modern World, the 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 language of the people of God. The well, and it was driven by the changes in the parish and the diocese. You mm. know, uh, so many the, the huge number of sisters left uh, teaching grade school, and they went into being DREs, youth ministers, social people. Uh, retreat centers, on and on and on. They went into all these things. They didn't really want to teach third grade, <laughs> you know, which is understandable. I, I can't blame them. Um, and so they went into all these, uh, these ministries. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and then the, the parish, the parish just had a, a, a pastor and assistant. It, it, didn't, it didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. for the parishioners and uh, it, it w said in retrospect that the Catholic Church educated the children because they had a school and played with the adults because mm -hmm. it had a Halloween party or something so <laughs> the whole idea that uh, that people other than the parochial school children would go to school that drew thousands of people but they had to go they had to go and get an MA in theology mm -hmm. So the, the theological world uh, changed, and uh, in, in a sense, so I didn't make any choices. I, was, <laughs> I, I just set, set the canoe you're, you're out. You're a bystander in all of this. <laughs> I just set the canoe out into the river. And, uh, but I think in a way, so I went through four, probably four major stages in, in um, 12 years or so. Yeah. But it, but it sounds like you, you did want to be a teacher. I mean, it sounds like that's, yeah. that was the attraction of the Dominicans for you, right? No, not necessarily. I didn't even know what teaching was. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you what, what made me a teacher was watching so much bad teaching. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, teaching the neo-scholasticism. Oh, a little footnote is at least... Um, so for those six years, 
at least one and sometimes two of the courses that met three or four times a week were in Latin. Mm -hmm. So, the, and the, most of the teachers couldn't teach in Latin. Oh dear. <laughs> that seems like a particularly wretched combination. Yeah, so. For them too. Yeah, no, for everyone, yeah. everyone's unhappy. <laughs> but, but we would still have an oral exam in Latin. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so, my God, we weren't anywhere even thinking about teaching. We we're trying to get past the use of the ablative in, mm -hmm. in Latin. And, um, so, uh, you know, the, what was being taught was uninteresting. And uh, I remember when I was in, I'd been in the seminary for five years at least, and we, we were out at a picnic or something. We started uh, arguing and talking, and we were, so I was probably just two years away from ordination. And we were arguing and talking about what is theology, and we 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 were in our beyond two years of it, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know because it, it it had no connection to people's lives. Sure, yeah, you know. So <laughs> the I, but I I was a I wasn't I was on the I think a not bystander is the right metaphor, but I was in the con, in the river in a little canoe being carried forward, whether <laughs> just, I liked it or trying not. Trying to stay afloat. Yeah. <laughs> feeling I know well. But you could you could go and look at the you know, you could go and look at the programs for this society and you would and uh, you would see the same history. Mm -hmm. um, so in 68 I went to my first uh, CTSA convention uh, in Washington DC. Some of the people two people in my that had taught me in the Dominicans uh, were active in the CTSA and um, so I went to the convention. Um, there were there were three hundred people there, or were the three hundred? Maybe there were three hundred and fifty people in the society. That's what it was, and there there might have been like a hundred and fifty or so there. Um, they were all in black suits and collars, <laughs> and there were uh, three non clerics in the society. A woman. And that I, I don't know her uh, that such well. Then Agnes Cunningham, who is still alive and, and uh, had a doctorate in theology. Well, the, the other woman did too. And then there was a brother who, who taught in uh, New Rochelle or something, and he was the financial manager of the society. But the topics of the convention were, were very progressive. Uh, but I mean, you know, uh, 10 years later, that's, that's 68. Eight years later, in 76, how, how many people belonged, how many were, were uh, women, sisters, lay people, and everything. Mm -hmm. the, the th you, so the history and the pay topics and everything of the society, I, I think, would tell the same story. As you look back, as you're floating along in your canoe, <laughs> what were the things that had brought you the most joy and what are the things that you felt, ah, oh, I've been banging my head against this wall and the wall may win in the end? <laughs> well, um, it's a powerful metaphor. Thank you. Um, I, I found out, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know this at all until I was, you know, back and I was 29. I found out that I loved to teach. Mm -hmm. I loved to teach in, in, in any form, anywhere. And, and when I came back from... Uh, uh, from Europe, so I taught at the Aquinas, the school in Dubuque, and then 
I went out to a lot of uh, parishes, mm -hmm. uh, Protestant and Catholic parishes in the upper Mississippi Valley and talked about what was going on. I mean, everybody needed to be educated in a sense. Um, and I, I never had any um, sense of frustration, e even though, um, you know, from the point of view of the hierarchy, you, you, we've all lived through some unpleasant times. But I never, I never, uh, I never felt pessimistic in any way because I had seen, uh, you know, in the first, in, well, in the Vatican two years, I'd seen so many wonderful positive changes that no matter what they did, uh, didn't bother me a bit. <laughs> it didn't bother me a bit. I mean, you know, this, this, the new translation of the liturgy is not good, and it's very difficult to, to read, and it doesn't make any sense half the time. But, but, um, but the, and that's unfortunate. But the whole liturgy and everything is in the vernaculars for the whole world. So, you know, and uh, you, uh, you know, there's still the issue of, of Protestants and and uh, Lutherans going to communion at uh, services they might be attending. That might be un unfortunate, but the, the change is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, so everywhere you look, the fact is there there were just rapid and uh, and huge changes. So the fact that everything isn't perfect. Yeah, no, I, I was just so uh, transformed by th those years that everything changed. It was just mm -hmm. great. You know. Does it does it seem like Vatican II also then gave you hope for future changes beyond what happened then? Or, well, I think uh, if you look at my generation, Vatican II um, produced these documents. Everybody knew the documents; they were all in the red paperback book. Um, but um, the documents are, are, we you saw right away the documents are rather limited mm -hmm. uh, I mean the the revelation document on revelation is not very big the, I remember you know having somebody point out to me that the different paragraphs were obviously written by different groups of people mm -hmm. so, some are liberal some are not so Secondly, the the document on liturgy and the whole, even the ethos on liturgy was surpassed by the time they got to the end of the council. So, so my generation saw Vatican II as an event and setting things in motion. So many things were changed within two or three years. Yeah, so there was no, uh, there was no idea that the, the letter of Vatican II was it was it was important for what it had caused, but it wasn't all that important otherwise. And and all the issues, by the time you get to the late seventies, the the issues are all those that are beyond Vatican II. Women, mm -hmm. women isn't treated in Vatican II. Women mm -hmm. in the church, yeah. So there there were now that's not true if you talk about the the local bishop and the papacy, but all these bioethical issues. Nobody, nobody even heard of these things. So, so 
the ethos that is around today is foreign to me and I think also to my whole generation and that is to you know to to say here are the documents of Vatican II here's what happened here are the ideas you have to do that I guess with people who weren't even alive or weren't <laughs> even near alive I can understand that but but it's a mistake to think that that the documents created the church of today mm -hmm. they were uh, the seeds of the church of today mm -hmm. but well, if you look at a lot, a lot of them aren't any good. <laughs> I mean, who goes back to the document on communication? Maybe somebody. It's actually Steve me. Does, yeah. <laughs> about the only one, but yeah. yeah. And well, it, it has some pious thoughts, I'm sure, but it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what to do with the web. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and it, the the, I I like the one sort of saving grace about it in a way is yeah. that it's so it, it's in this odd way so aware of its of its failings that all, all it really succeeds in doing is saying it, it creates a couple different structures for thinking about the question. Oh, and that, and that's, and that's all that really comes out of it in a certain sense. So it, yeah. like the communications day annually and the, the council and um, the document that comes out, you know, five, six years later, it just says like, we're going to basically, I mean, it has some things, but it ends up tabling a lot of that to set up the structure for response. And, and that's the one really good thing that comes out of it. Really, and believe Believe me, you know, I mean, I, I was down in Rome during the council because often I'd have relatives and friends mm. visiting and we would end up there. So I, I would go to the talks and things like that. <laughs> there were plenty of the, the theologians and bishops at the council who hardly used, knew how to use a phone. Yeah. So, I mean, they're not going to tell you what to do with the, <laughs> with the Internet. But I think you described it very well. All those documents, they, they have some things, but they're just an impetus to get mm -hmm. going. Uh, so one thing I was wondering about as you were, you were talking is you, you talk about how you fell in love with teaching and, and came to love it, and you also, that was at least partly spurred by a lot of bad teaching that you witnessed and experienced. What would you say makes a good teacher of theology? Uh, okay, well, the... The first uh, shocking idea is you have to like people. Hmm. Yes. You have to like people, and you have to spontaneously like your students. Uh, and, okay, and then you have that atmosphere. You, you, have, to, um, you have to have a, a topic which is of some significance. The minor profits is, is not going to make it. Mm -hmm. for a whole semester you know you might do a day on the minor profits and um, I'm thinking of undergraduates but even up into the graduates you have to yeah, have absolutely. a top sure, sure. topic that's that's of some significance and interest today mm -hmm. and uh, you have to see even if it's the you know the resurrection you have to see how this is somehow connected to today's society mm -hmm. some topics uh, are not you know the people just beat their head against the wall trying to make the topic have a, a relevance but uh, history is divided into, into different cultures and and people are only interested in in a few things you know the renaissance had interests but there's a lot of things the renaissance wasn't interested in mm -hmm. we're interested in certain things we're not interested in painting frescoes mainly Mm -hmm. So you, the topic has to be of some significance, and you have to 
see some connection to the to the world around you. Um, you have to, you know, you have to have it uh, organized. And um, when when I I taught in the in the graduate school in the seminary and in the theology school in Dubuque for for thirteen years before I went to Notre Dame. So I never taught undergraduates, mm. and I was I was quite uh, worried about it. And um, and one of my colleagues, uh, and we we'll see what Amanda is a very good undergraduate teacher thinks. He said uh, to me, uh, "So you know we're all teaching their." first or second required course of 8,000 undergraduates. And, uh, and he said, no matter what you're discussing, how big it is or little, they can only take it for three days. <laughs> <laughs> so it can be God. They only need three days. And you got to move on to Jesus or move on to, <laughs> to the Holy Spirit. And, and I found... I found that to be kind of true. Do you think yeah. there's some truth to that? Yeah, that's not bad. I think even in the, the midst of a larger topic, you've got to help them them shift to new things. Because yes. some of the stuff you just have to percolate on, and the connections may be clearer later in the semester anyway than they are right yeah. now. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but just because it's a big topic, it doesn't mean it's immediately going to be the, uh, a good topic for a course in, in 2015. Yeah. And... Uh, you, you, you've got to either break it down uh, one way or another, you've got to move on. Mm-hmm. I think that was, that's the, the problem is that people think, well, 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 God made this a big topic. Who am I not to spend weeks? And, <laughs> well, really, I've got plenty, not with plenty of college to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this topic. Mm-hmm. After all, if it was big enough for God, but it's not. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> even the, the tension of that of talking with, colleagues about, okay, here are the things we want our students to be able to do, but by the time they graduate with a major, versus some of the things that our students want to be able to do by the time yeah. they graduate with a major. And, and there's a gap there. And try, so trying to figure out how we can, you know, give them the things that we think that they need while at the same time addressing where they're at and the outcomes they'd like to see. Um, that's a little bit of a dance sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, the course has to be, uh, it has to have a good organization. I think also, I don't think you make theology important to them or valuable in the school by making it just as difficult as electrical engineering. <laughs> I don't think you. I don't think you have to make it difficult. I don't think you should make it difficult at all. It's a different kind of course, and uh, so there's nothing wrong with it. Get, letting the electrical engineers have a bit of a break. And uh, you know, <laughs> they I, might like theology better for it. Yeah, I don't think you 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 know you prove that it's important by by making by making it unpleasant and mm-hmm. difficult. Yes, yeah, no, that's just no way to win friends or influence yeah. people that way. Mm-hmm. I had a, a a junior colleague who was just out of graduate school, who came. Oh, th- yeah, this is somewhat pertinent. Who came? He was having a lot of trouble in class and. He was using a lot of scripture. And I said, you know, I just use a parable or a, a section. And I said, the, the, the sections and the parables, they're, they're, all, they're, they're all quite interesting, but they're not so interesting when you have six of them in a row. Mm-hmm. Or, or mm-hmm. to just say now, uh, the next three weeks, we're going to do Matthew. 
Oh boy. Well, he, so anyway, he um, he wasn't convinced of this. He'd come out of a scriptural background, and uh, he said, "Well, surely that wouldn't be true of Romans." <laughs> no, yeah, six weeks on Romans. Let's go yeah, for it. And I said, Aww. I said, you know, I I just spent a I spent a year or so uh, reading Romans slowly with a, a dictionary uh, in Greek because I'd I'd had a lot of Greek in my old, old. I never had any psychology in college or sociology, but I had f four semesters of college Greek. Mm -hmm. But so I said, well, I I just. Try, tried to read parts of it recently in Greek and uh, learn about it. And inside, I said, I couldn't tell you what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot, a lot of exegetes would agree with that. That's it's not clear. For the what is he talking right about through all these chapters? <laughs> it just, it just goes on. It, you know, it's got all kinds of huge topics. But anyway, a lot of jumps. Um, I thought that was true about scripture. At the at the graduate level, one of the things that I always pushed is go and spend time in the current periodical room and and walk through and look at all the theological periodicals. Look at what are the topics, uh, what periodicals are publishing this, uh, different countries and things like that. Um, I said, I think it's much more important to do that than to read books. Hmm. Uh, because the books are one person and uh, they might tire a little bit. And and it takes, uh, now it doesn't take so long, but until recently it took quite a while from the time the person started writing a book to when it got out. Hmm. But anyway, the journals tell you right away what people are thinking about things. And, and it goes back to everything I was saying. See what's interesting. How do you apply stuff? What are other people doing? I still think it's the most valuable thing you can do, and I'm disappointed to say over the decades, not a lot of people took my advice. <laughs> but I'm convinced. We're not going to name any names. We're not going to yeah. name any names. <laughs> well, I don't but know some of them maybe here at the CTSA I don't know if right anybody now. took my advice. You know, the, the, even in Madison, I mean, I go over to Edgewood and walk through, or, or if I were at, at Loris, I would walk through the current periodicals. When you were directing dissertations or when you're thinking about, the, I mean, you're, yeah. you've written and published quite a lot yourself, what writing practices do you employ? Like, do you, do you have a very strict schedule that you put yourself on? Are you more of a, you know, as the spirit moves you type of guy? How does, how does that happen for you? First of all, I like wandering through the periodicals is another somewhat unpopular idea. I aspire, I uh, belong to the school, writers are born, not made. Mm. And I think all writers say that, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, somebody asked the great German novelist Thomas Mann, uh, you know, well, what's a writer? And he said, a writer is someone who writes. So. <laughs> when I when I first went Easy to, to remember. Yes. to Loris, uh, you know, I, I somehow I wanted to write, uh, and um, well, and a, the professor. One of the things the professor said, if if you want to, I took a course in one course in creative writing, and and one of the opening things was uh, to read fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, and so I wanted to write, so I just. That, I guess that's the canoe that I pushed out into the mm -hmm. river, and 
um, yeah, I was just crazy about <laughs> writing. And after some years, I realized what I what I really wanted ultimately was to see myself in print. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is nice. So, right, and you know, and then around the time I got to be forty, I realized. I don't write and publish for scientific scholarly reasons. I write and publish for aesthetic reasons. Uh, mm. So I, I'm interested in having interesting ideas. Mm. I don't care if they're true or not. <laughs> 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 Maybe I shouldn't have said that right. <laughs> I don't worry about that all that much. But I, I, w I want them to be interesting and attractive mm -hmm. to other people. Mm -hmm. But so I just. Um, I don't have any, I just write spontaneously. Mm. Uh, like most writers, uh, it's really good if you can write in the morning. Mm -hmm. My problem has always been I have too many ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I came to the realization that I was really doing this for kind of artistic, instead of being a painter or a musician, mm -hmm. I'm a writer. Not because I've, I'm uh, d discovering a new theory in mm. the Vatican Archives. Mm -hmm. That's a great insight. How did you come to that? Well, th that insight? Yeah. Oh, I, I came to it because um, because I, I, around the time I was 40, I was, uh, I went to Nigeria and taught for a semester. Huh. And I got malaria. Oh, and right. when I came back, uh, I was a f physical wreck. Mm -hmm because I still had malaria, and I was worn out, and I didn't have the sense to, to stop teaching for a semester, so I was kind of driven, and I was, and I was upset about all the projects I had that I was too worn out to do anything about them. I was chronically depressed and everything like that. So part of coming to grips with all that was to realize that I was not a a machine mm. that was set up just to work all the time. I, I was somebody who, in fact, was enjoying all this. Mm. And so I had to learn it the hard way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's been the majority been, of my lessons, too. Yeah, been much better if I somebody had given me a paperback on psychology instead of getting malaria. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. Yeah. So as maybe a final question before this, our, our little questionnaire. In addition to this insight about whether or not one is genuinely a writer and the uh, apparently often ignored advice about touring the journal section of the library, what other advice might you give to graduate students in theology or theologians early in their career? Well, another um, shocking idea is in, early in your career, you've got to find out if you really want to do this and if your personality wants to do it uh, and can do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I might have spent years uh, wanting to be a professional basketball player, but that, uh, that isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you, you've got to be realistic that, that what the theologian does is, is write and, and, write and inter interesting stuff and teach other people. So if you're not very much drawn to other people, and if you don't uh, have interesting ideas, then you've got to move on to pro basketball or something else. <laughs> Some other terrible career. Yeah, but you've got to find out, you've mm -hmm. you got to realize that's what they do. They don't uh, 
and and often, especially I think in the Ivy League schools and places, um, their whole education is in a rarefied atmosphere where that doesn't take place. In, in Catholic schools, all the doctoral students eventually teach, mm-hmm. uh, but but none of them teach, or very few, if any, in these other th- things. So they don't find out if they they uh, uh, think that being a uh, a theologian will be being a tenured professor mm-hmm. somewhere and conducting a seminar on Kierkegaard. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not that for most of us. That isn't going to. Uh, help us earn a living or do anything. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a problem. You you need to find out, do I really like to do these things? Mm-hmm. And once I went to a meeting of of uh, doctoral programs in theology and religious studies and their relationship to seminaries. And this, this, uh, this wasn't that long ago, 20 years ago maybe. And the seminaries, they the representatives of seminaries were very outspoken that these abstract uh, PhD programs, they weren't preparing uh, teachers for uh, good teachers for church schools or, or for seminaries. And I, and I gave my presentation, I agreed with it, and, and I said that, that I found that too many people who were in uh, theology doctoral programs or in the seminary, that what they really wanted to be was a librarian. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of deans and people agreed with me. <laughs> now the other side of it was I was never invited back. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to be a prophet, Tom. <laughs> but there's some truth to that. You you know you you think of the people who were in graduate school with you. They liked books and they liked the atmosphere of academia and all that. And then they were thrown out into the world of uh, of. Catholic colleges and mm-hmm. to get a job and everything, well, it's got nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, to conclude, there, there's a te- teaching in a certain sense. Well, it's an extroverted profession, mm-hmm. and uh, and no small number of the people who go into the doctoral programs are introverts. Yep. So you got to like people, you, and you've got to know how to perform and and entertain them a little mm-hmm. bit. So, all bad ideas. It'd <laughs> be better to say, well, the main thing to do is to read Aristotle on teaching and Cardinal Newman's idea of the university. I don't know how far that'll get you, but okay. Yeah. That's certainly an option. Well, to wrap up, we have a, a few shorter, less serious questions. Number one, are you, do you, are you team coffee or team tea? Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Solidly, all day long? or No, no, no. I I never drank coffee until uh, I was uh, 40 years old. Really? Yeah. And I drink only half a cup now. All right. You take it black or do you adulterate it? Or? Either way. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. What is your favorite biblical name? Oh. Uh, well, uh, maybe Thomas. All right. Seems appropriate. Seems fitting. Yeah. All right. What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? Liturgical what? Song. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can go favorite or least favorite. Or yeah. both if you want. Yeah. The, uh, oh, it's the, oh, it was, you know, before Vatican II, there were very few songs we knew. Mm-hmm. Maybe just three. 
And one of them was, oh, Lord, I am not worthy, mm-hmm. uh, which we all knew and sang over and over again. And, and his words to, to a, a fourth grader didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like one of the lines is, nor fly thy sweet control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, so but anyway, that, that really is a loser. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, I am not worthy, nor fly thy sweet control. <laughs> uh, uh, number four, uh, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? Oh, I don't know, maybe teaching. And then lastly, had you not gone to the Dominicans or, or become a teacher, had you gotten into a different canoe, you might say, what other profession or job do you think you might have enjoyed or might have tried? Um, if you had had a choice early on. As you yeah. I, I think, um, I think uh, sometimes I think, you know, I might have enjoyed being, being a, in art history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, uh, working in a museum or in galleries or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which is, is not all that different because you're basically showing lots of people something that's interesting and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And let me, let me say that until I left my native state of Iowa in the Midwest in 63 and went to Europe, I had never been in a museum. Huh. We have those in Iowa now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I had never been in a museum. Huh. Never been in a museum, and almost never heard a con. I just heard a couple of concerts. Yeah. yeah. So, it must uh, have been so to go to Europe, Europe, go to yeah. Europe was mind blowing. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for talking with us. I greatly okay, appreciate. Thank it. you. Thanks very much. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 